Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, right now, Venezuela has two presidents, sort of. Uh, the current uh, president, the, ha- the person who has been in charge, Nicolas Maduro, uh, has come under a precedent pressure. We have a new 35-year-old who declared himself the rightful president of the nation in front of the National Assembly. Uh, he's 35 years old. Uh, he is uh, Guaido, who is actually represent, uh, was actually supported by President Trump and a host of other uh, nations. Joining us now to talk about this, Eric Fine, portfolio manager, uh, focusing on the the Emerging Markets Fixed Income Strategy at Vanet Global in New York, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Eric, thank you so much for being here. Why is this different than previous bouts of turmoil and unrest in Venezuela? Yep, great, great question. Um, number one, a new president was sworn in. The, the, that was the event. Um, number two, uh, a range of countries in the hemisphere uh, 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 recognized him as a new president, including the U.S., which is important because it has sticks. Um, everything from uh, um, the, the, you know, an extreme version would be military action or freezing or uh, diverting uh, control of assets, let's say PDVSA or certainly Citgo, which is in the U.S., the refineries in the U.S. Um, another one is, another important thing to note is that violence was relatively low compared to the last big protest in 2017, indicating um, reluctance on the, possibly re- indicating reluctance on the part of security forces to, to you know, confront the population. Um, and uh, similarly, when Maduro gave his speech at the presidential palace, um, there were not a, lot of the, uh, not a lot of key high command officials standing next to him. Normally, when a president would say there's a, uh, there's a coup attempt, you would expect not just the defense minister to issue a Twitter statement, you'd expect a lot of the high command to do it as well. So I'd say those are the key, those are the key developments. But the most important, we, a new president was sworn in and a number of key countries uh, recognized. So I thought that was critical, the, the fact that, uh, you know, recognized so quickly by many countries. Three minutes afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. So um, what are the next steps that investors should be looking for to see which way this thing could go? I, uh, it's very dynamic, so it's hard to say. There's a strong temptation to say it's binary. Either the opposition wins and Maduro's out or Maduro's out uh, or Maduro remains and muddles through for another few months, and in which case, you know, we'll, we'll just keep talking about it, and we'll see then. Um, I would say there might be, uh, and I'd say that, that, that those are two serious scenarios. Um, uh, but there's a third scenario in which the military fractures. A lot of the a lot of the powerful folks in the military um, are on sanctions lists uh, for, uh, with the U.S. And so, an amnesty domestically isn't going to really mean much to them. They the, the temptation for them is to dig in their heels. So I'd say. There is that risky scenario of the military breaking up into fractions, but I'd basically look for disaffection within the military, disaffection between the military and the government. Um, U.S. actions can do a lot of, can, do, can, can, can really pressure things, um, um, but there is this other scenario of, of, of factionalization, which could, you know, which means we'll have to keep talking about it. So Venezuela is a really important country for the entire Latin American economy, given how much of an oil producer it is. 
It also is a very big uh, obligor, right? I mean, it has uh, $72 billion of debt, including a whole host of bonds that are defaulted. The prices on those bonds surging on the hope that Nicolas Maduro will get kicked out of power and will get uh, someone else in, Guaido uh, in particular. How hopeful are you that this price rise in these bonds is legitimate? I mean, are you, are you going more heavily into Venezuela debt? So um, we can only comment on where we were at the end of December, because um, we're in the middle of January. And at the end of December, we did have an overweight exposure to Venezuela. Um, and it was optionality. It was that this scenario was possible. And if it happened, there was a lot of upside. And if it didn't happen, we were kind of already there. Um, and so uh, um, I think there, there remains a significant upside to the bonds. Um, but you, one needs to be sensitive and cautious about that scenario I mentioned. I think that's the risky scenario. Um, I would say that the upside for Venezuela Venezuela is there are many reasons for it, but one is with the high, you know, among the highest proven oil reserves in the world. That's the kind of situation where credit can turn around very, very quickly. With U.S. and IMF support, moreover, and a, you know, by definition, a friendly government in this scenario, um, you can get the key thing that I've seen defining good workouts, which is quick. Right. So I've been, you know, I've been doing this for decades, and uh, I guess almost 30 years. The Often the most, usually the most important determinant of the value of a bond in a non-performing situation is not the deal you get, it's how quickly it comes. You but, should be discounting these things at high high rates, and if it happens quickly, the price should go up. Let's just talk, though, for a second about the toll that the Nicolas Maduro re regime has had on this nation. I mean, it's lost tremendous numbers of its people. Its population has been decimated. I mean, is oil enough to make its economy strong enough to legitimize its debt load and legitimize the pop in the in the bonds that we're seeing. Um, I th well, I think that's I think that's complicated. Um, um, as a stand on a standalone basis, you could. Uh, so I would say a few things. Um, number one, it's not just um, um, oil; it's economic management. Um, there have been there, there a lot of spending was essentially through subsidization of gasoline. Right, you famously you could pay a quarter to fill up your tank in a suburban um, um, and uh, a quarter of U.S. 25 cents um, worth of, uh, of bolivars. Um, the absence of a floating exchange rate regime, which orthodox you know, thinking would tell you is, 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 is reasonable or something towards that is reasonable. So it's not just the debt load. What I'd say about the debt load is there is going to be a re renegotiation. Um, and the renegotiation could create a lot of room, a lot more room. So PDVSA has more bonded debt um, and less hidden debt. Venezuela, the obligor called Venezuela, has more hidden debt and, and uh, less uh, uh, is the opposite situation. And very importantly, a lot of this hidden debt is Chinese and Russian. And how that gets treated, and China in particular has not participated in the sort of post-Bretton Woods, Paris Club, London Club structure. That's a longer discussion. We talked about it when I was here last, uh, IMF. But debt diplomacy in, uh, uh, was a big issue when I was last year, actually, when you're asking me what happened at IMF. Debt diplomacy and how China um, will, you know, the, the, there's a caricature, but lend money, and then um, when it doesn't get paid, in the case of Sri Lanka, seize a port, right? It, That's, it really is. When you think about China and Russia, it, it's not just the U.S. that has an interest here. China and Russia have been supporting Maduro. They have an interest there. That, to me, represents, I would guess, uh, if I'm thinking about the bonds or just the risk assessment of that country, a, a significant risk for a viable workout solution that you might be interested in. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a big risk depending on the 
political and policy scenario, and I'd say mostly the political scenario. Um, if you get one of these, if you get the, what I think most people would say is the positive outcome of, of, uh, of, of the existing government leaving, um, new government coming in led by Guaido initially, US IMF announcing they're willing to, willing to work with them, um, then um, I think uh, there's, there's substantial further upside in the bonds. And I think we're going to be looking at scenarios where, where uh, Russia and China get, you know, th those obligations uh, might be in a completely different queue. I think the things that will be in the front of the queue or in one type of queue will obviously be Pedevesa and Venezuela bonds. Pharmaceutical obligations are an obvious one too. You want the companies back, so things like yeah. that. But China, Russia, it's about the future. And are they going to be a big part of the future of a Venezuela with that leadership? I doubt it. So well, the incentives are low. Just 30 seconds here. I'm wondering if it's unfair to cast the U.S.'s support of Guaido, the opposition leader, as yet another front of the U.S.-China battle. Absolutely. I would say not. No, that I would say this is a domestic thing. And this is a, this is a domestic situation that's been festering for, you could argue, for over 10 years, um, and uh, uh, the uh, governments around the world are responding to it. Um, however, because China and Russia are involved, it may offer other opportunities for U.S. geostrategy to flex itself in an area where China and Russia really, at the end of the day, aren't, aren't, aren't really involved, or it's not a big part of their national interest, or it's obviously a more clear part of U.S. national interest. Eric Fine, thank you so much for being with us. Really, really wonderful insight on a day uh, when we're actually starting to see some of the change come to fruition that people have been talking about in Venezuela. Market's kind of mixed here this morning, but I did notice, you know, just looking at my screen, that year to date, the Russell 2000 is the best performer, up 8.3%. Uh, with us right now to talk to us about what's going on in the small cap world is Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks reporter. And uh, Paul, we're actually seeing gains in the smaller companies today, unlike their larger peers, the Russell 2000 index up four-tenths of a percent. Well, the S&P 500 isn't even higher by one-tenth of a percent at the moment. Now, the Russell's sharpest gain belongs to Triumph Group, whose ticker is TGI. The aircraft parts maker has risen almost 28%. Triumph reached a deal to transfer a wing-building business to Canada's Bombardier. Invacare, ticker IVC, has gained 10.5%. The healthcare distributor received a buy rating and new coverage at Needham. And Brooks Automation, ticker BRKS, is up 8%. Now, this company supplies chip production software and services, so it's part of a much bigger rally uh, after results from the chip equipment maker Lamb Research, as well as uh, chip companies Texas Instruments and Xilinx. Now, the Russell's steepest drop belongs to Briggs & Stratton, ticker BGG. Uh, the maker of engines for lawnmowers and other equipment is down almost 16.5% after posting an unexpected loss for the fiscal second quarter. And Wave Life Sciences, ticker WVE, has fallen 13%. The drug developer is raising $150 million through a share sale equivalent to a 12% stake. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks editor and a columnist, as well as contributor to Bloomberg Television and Radio. Thank you so much for being with us. I got to say, Paul, one asset class that has remained very confusing to me over the past few weeks is oil. There's just so many conflicting issues here. On one hand, it's sort of a proxy for global growth and, and where people think it's going. On the other hand, it's a supply-demand picture. And to sort of parse this all out, uh, to give us a sense of where uh, some of the oil executives are thinking things might be going, let's bring in Javier Blas, who is on-site 
website at Davos. He is our chief energy correspondent for Bloomberg. Uh, so Javier, right now we're kind of going sideways, actually looking at Brent. Uh, that's actually a little down on the day. I'm just wondering what the tone is among the oil executives and others that you're speaking with at Davos. The tone is positive for oil prices. Uh, the executives think that the market is slowly tightening because OPEC and particularly Saudi Arabia are cutting production and they are cutting quite aggressively. But there are so many headwinds. One is that OPEC was producing a lot at the end of last year. The other one is uncertainty around the global economy and also China. And the third one is that the U.S. production, particularly in Texas and other places, including Oklahoma and North Dakota, continues to be very strong. And that is putting a cap on prices. Add to that Iran and Venezuela, and everyone here is positive but rather confused of where is uh, going to be the next leg for oil prices. Well, Javier, you mentioned Venezuela, and that country now has the benefit, I guess, of two presidents. Um, so obviously political uh, instability uh, in that very important um, important oil market with uh, you know Venezuela. I was surprised to learn just recently one of the largest oil reserves uh, is held by Venezuela. What are you hearing over there as it relates to uh, the political issue at Venezuela, what that might do to the future of oil markets? Well, two things. Over the short term, everyone is concerned this could be a bullish factor for two reasons. One is that the White House is considering, but has not taken yet action, about imposing oil sanctions on Venezuela. That will be uh, restricting or, or including banning the importation of uh, Venezuelan crude oil into the United States. Uh, remember, Venezuela is the third largest source of crude oil, foreign crude oil for the U.S. That will be very bullish on the short term. Or it could be a situation of uh, civil unrest in the country. And again, that will be bullish. Production could fall. But over the long term, if we have a transition, a political transition, uh, things could turn uh, quite rather bearish for oil prices because Venezuela, as you said, pr uh, has a lot of oil reserves. They could start increasing production. Remember, in the the late 1990s, Venezuela was pumping around 3.5 million barrels a day. It barely does 1 million today. So it has the capacity to increase production quite significantly. How much would that lower prices, given the fact that we have oil uh, production out of the U.S. at record highs and climbing to new records every month? Well, that, that's one of the that, that's the biggest cap factor. I was talking um, uh, only a few hours ago with uh, Mark Dunan. He's the uh, CEO of Mercuria, one of the world's largest oil traders. And, and he was telling me that he thinks that prices are going to go a bit higher, potentially 65, maybe $70 a barrel. But beyond there, he said, then you really trigger the big machine of the Permian in West Texas. You get another lack of increasing production from the U.S. and then prices go down and OPEC is in trouble. So for OPEC, the sweet spot will be to try to keep prices around $65, $70 a barrel, which is good enough for them, potentially not as high as they would like. You're talking about Brent, right? Because yeah, I'm talking, talking about okay. crude oil which brand. Which is currently $61. Indeed. Okay, uh, carry on. But, but that, that, will, that will mean that, that they, they keep in check uh, U.S. production. As you say, it is increasing. It goes up every week. We are close to 12 million barrels a day, and we are probably going to add another million, million point two barrels a day uh, uh, in 2019. And let's not forget, last year in 2018, production increased by 2 million barrels a day. That was the largest increase on an annual base in the United States in 100 years. So just real quickly, Javier, what are you hearing over there in Davos about Russia? They seem to be a wild card. 
Uh, it's a wild card. It's a wild card in different factors. One is uh, what is gonna what what is gonna happen with the collaboration between OPEC and Russia. The Russians are are starting to sound like um, they are not that happy with the production cuts. So that's one wild card. Second wild card on Russia. What is gonna be Russia doing uh, versus Iran and Syria? Third one, Vene uh, Venezuela. Russia, Moscow has uh, come supporting Nicolas Maduro today. So that's gonna be also another big factor for the oil market. Javier Blas, thank you very much. Javier is the chief energy correspondent for Bloomberg News. He called in from Davos, Switzerland. Well, investors in the Walt Disney Company and Comcast, they know very well that one of the best businesses in those big media companies is their theme park business. Theme park business, you know, we see it quarter after quarter, year after year, double-digit profit growth. And as a result, big companies like Disney and Comcast continue to ramp up their investment in their parks and resorts business. One of our next guests is certainly one of the beneficiaries of that increased investment in the, in the theme park and, and attractions business. That is Mike Konzen. He is CEO of PGAV Destinations, companies based in St. Louis, but Mike is in here with in New York with our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Mike, thanks so much for being here. Can you just give us and our listeners just a quick snapshot of what you do and how you play in the theme park business? Well, sure. Thank you for having me. So we started in the theme park business back in the late 60s, and we were involved in the development of some of the uh, early theme parks in the United States, like Busch Gardens and Williamsburg, and, and got, our, uh, got our sense of roller coasters and entertainment and, and how these parks operate and function. And since that time, we've been fortunate to see that continue, not just in the United States and grow around the world. So given the progress in both designing these uh, roller coasters as well as executing them, are there any roller coasters that you would just not go on? <laughs> well, you know, I like them all, but this is I mean, sort of from a, a danger perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you can go to some of the historic theme parks in Europe where they have wooden roller coasters that actually have a brakeman who actually pulls a lever to stop the coaster with and then break it. So I always wondered what happens if something happens to the brakeman, you know? So those are, those are, those cross the line for me. Those are a little scary. So Mike, we've seen, you know, if you think about your theme park business, obviously in the United States, you think about Disney and Orlando and in LA, but you know, the investment that we're seeing and these companies are making outside of the US mm. is just, you know, staggering. I know, for example, Disney spent $5 billion on its Shanghai uh, resort. What are you seeing kind of globally in demand for some of these properties? Well, it's extraordinary. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago, could I predict this kind of growth? I don't think anyone really could have foreseen it. And I think there are a lot of forces in play. Obviously, uh, the brands, the intellectual properties associated with these entities are huge and they're being consumed globally now. So, you know, this is a major brand touch point for so many of the consumers in places like China and the Middle East and so forth. Uh, we see uh, countries in places like the Middle East who are trying to shift from a petro-based uh, economy to entertainment and tourism. And we've been involved in some of these projects. And, and one of the things that's interesting about those is that those 
are tantamount to building a new national identity. You know, think of the UAE as a destination, not as a place of oil wealth. I love that Paul is interested in, you know, how businesses are expanding into theme parks. And I'm just wondering, are my children going to die on these things? And I'm wondering, you know, there's a rumor. Uh, I remember a, a sort of old wives tale that crazy people design these. Uh, is that true that they sort of get madmen to go in there and imagine the craziest uh, pattern and then they rec recreate that, recreate you, that? You know, you'd be surprised. I mean, there is a crazy aspect to it, right? But, but we're working with with some of the most precise Swiss engineers in the world who are calculating g-forces that your children would experience on the ride and it is they they know so much now about the physiological effects of rides that you know what a person can tolerate and what a broad, broad range of people can tolerate right so um, they're very precise about all this so don't worry it'll be okay <laughs> <laughs> and how much is sort of an average cost too how much can people charge for one ride Oh, I don't know. You know, most of them are packaged in the context of large attractions like theme parks. And so, uh, but it is interesting that there are ROI on a new coaster in an existing theme park. You know, this thing is often paying for itself within a year or two. And yep. that's remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. You know, when the Comcast Corporation bought NBC Universal, they kind of thought their theme park business was just a throwaway business. They were buying the cable networks and the studios and things like that. But they've since found that it is one of the best, consistent, most profitable businesses uh, they have. So, so what are some of the cool projects you're either working on or you've recently uh, launched? What are you guys doing? Well, since we were talking about the global theme park industry, I, I would mention Ocean Kingdom, which uh, was built in China before Disney Shanghai opened. And until Disney Shanghai opened, I would say it was probably the best, arguably the best theme park in China, uh, built near Hong Kong and Macau. And in fact, one of the big plans for that park was that the Hong Kong to Chuhai Bridge would open. It's the largest, the longest oversea bridge in the world. So it's 52 kilometers. So now you can go directly from Hong Kong to this park and, and without a, necessarily even having a Chinese visa. So it, that, that project is now hosting about 10 million visitors a year. So I'm wondering, you know, we hear a lot about the experience and how important it is. I'm wondering, can you imagine a Macy's roller coaster, or a Nordstrom roller coaster? At what point do, do retailers and, and malls get into it? You know, it's interesting. I think that I think that there's a lot of room for growth. I mean, I think that the new wave of intellectual properties that we see connected to theme park and roller coaster experiences are video games. For instance, you know, highly immersive story-based experiences that that are very visceral, right? So it translates beautifully into something like a like a ride. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think that more consumer brands will find their way into this into this area as well. And what are some of the technologies that are driving it? You said you you know you've got some of these amazing world-class engineers. I would think you know consumers they you know just I would guess their demands are always going up. I mean, the millennials want this wonderful experience. What are some of the new technologies that you think are going to be important going forward? Well, I think I think the integration of story and media is going to change, continue to change this. Obviously, with uh, you know the Harry Potter project down in Orlando for Universal, they they went into new avenues of of exploration of how you how you take a coaster which is a moving experience and yet you have it make sense visually and you know cognitively to to a visitor flying through some environment and the story is still powerful and apparent to you you know the hippogriff is chasing you or whatever whatever it is but i think that you know we we've, we've put vr glasses on people you know we've done all of this sort of thing that's so cool. So what's been your favorite project to work on? Oh, wow. You know, they're, so, like they're all my babies. Uh, yeah, I'm not going right. to pick I, one. I don't choose between my children, right? <laughs> no, I think, I think that, that 
there are a lot of good ones. I think uh, some of them are not theme park based. Okay, so so I love the American Space Program. So we did a project called Space Shuttle Atlantis at Kennedy Space Center, which celebrated the completion of the space shuttle program and and is now you know hosting a couple million people a year there. And it it's not the biggest thing we've ever done, about a hundred million, but it's but it's very powerful. And it replicates the experience of launching into space? It does, and it also has the actual space shuttle, space shuttle Atlantis, which went into space 33 times, and fortunately came back so we can put it in a museum. That's so cool. How many times uh, in a row can you go on a... I don't know. It's uh, again, we, we had a lot of fun in the early days. You know, that was that was a lot of fun. But uh, my kids love it. And I tell you, the theme park business is a fantastic business. And the millennials love the experience. Absolutely. <laughs> Mike Conson, thank you so much for being with us. Mike Conson is chief executive officer of PGAV Destinations based in St. Louis. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. I got to say, I can't go on roller coasters the way I used to, but they always look amazing. And I will say Coney Island is a lot of fun, too. Uh, on the phone with us to discuss what's going on in the U.S. airline business is George Ferguson. George is a senior aerospace, defense, and airline analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He comes to us from Bloomberg Intelligence headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So, George, thanks for being with us. And I know you're busy this morning with a lot of these earnings resorts, uh, reports and pretty good numbers. So what are the highlights from your perspective? Yeah, I think the markets uh, – well, first, good morning. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Good to hit to talk to you. Um, I think the excitement here is is a bit about American, which uh, is showing uh, capacity increases, I think, uh, lower than we all expected. Um, they're a little more contained. And, and I think there's some hope in the industry that we could see less capacity come to the business over 2019, which would help fares. Uh, you know, if we can get fares to rise in this business, we could probably improve uh, profit margins year over year. What about pricing power? Yeah. So uh, what I told you was where I thought the excitement was coming from. Um, what I think is that there's still too much capacity coming to this market, and that's going to really uh, challenge pricing power. So American looked kind of contained in their discussions about capacity uh, this morning. Uh, but we've got Delta and United, which are adding, uh, I think, you know, United is like 5% in the first quarter, Delta like 4%. We're still growing. They're still growing at rates above uh, GDP growth. And so we think that's a negative for pricing power. Well, most people are, are predicting, most airlines predicting, uh, guiding to sort of flat to, to higher uh, you know, r revenue per available seat mile or whatever metric they're using. Uh, I think there's still some some potential here for weakness. We could be flat or even down. And I think another challenge we have out there is this government shutdown. And as it drags on, I think there's a risk that flyers won't want to be booking, uh, you know, trips. They won't want to be going to the airport and managing potential risk with security. So I think one Q, especially, we could have some challenges from that as well. But I think pricing power is the big challenge. So what did the uh, as you listen to the uh, quarterly conference calls with management, what are they saying about the shutdown? Are they in fact seeing any early signs to uh, demand? Yeah. So I'd say. You know, United and Delta came much earlier, so there wasn't a lot of commentary. Uh, we've just gotten through American now. It's it's closing as we speak. Um, not a lot of commentary on, on the government shutdown yet. I've seen some uh, numbers thrown around the industry that maybe it's impacted revenues by 100 or $150 million or you know, sort of $100 million levels. 
And we're talking about an industry that's going to have uh, probably 30 billion in revenues in one queue. So, so far, estimates are that it really hasn't impacted much. But remember, we've gone through one missed paycheck, um, and we're getting ready to come up to the second missed paycheck for TSA workers this Friday. And I think things get a bit more precarious after that about getting those people to show up to work and, you know, clearing security lines or having security lines flow smoothly. So, George, can you set us up taking a step back at the uh, the war between the older behemoths in the airline industry and the sort of newer upstarts that have catered to people who are looking for discount fares? Southwest and JetBlue versus Delta and American. And I'm wondering how that's lining up. And I'm, I'm, I'm pitting these against each other because of the unions, because of the legacy workers and some of the other issues uh, that Delta and American have been pretty vocal about. Where are we on that? Yeah, I mean, so we expect uh, we haven't gotten uh, full guidance of some of those fast movers yet, but uh, you know, we've looked at the number of airplanes they're receiving and some of their schedules guidance, and and we really expect that you know the ones that will bring a lot of capacity to the market, the airlines that bring a lot of capacity, will be Frontier, will be Spirit Airlines. Uh, even JetBlue is probably a bit a bit contained. But Southwest, though, is even talking about a five percent growth. So, I think what you have here is you have these these ultra low costs, which have you know absolutely the cheapest cost to deliver seats in the air, continue to add large amounts of capacity because you know airplanes are relatively cheap. Less lessors uh, lease rates in some of the newest airplanes are actually dropping right now. Um, so these airlines can go secure lift fairly cheaply and they're really expanding and looking for market share and if you're southwest you just can't let that happen uh more so than the americans and the uniteds um and the deltas which have more of a business component but but so i think you know part of this drive is again those ultra low costs which which can deliver seat miles cheaper continuing continuing to keep the heat on the industry and it's hurting you know, it's hurting the Southwest. It's even hurting the Deltas, Uniteds, and Americans because the back of their cabins are filled with flyers that are flying once or twice a year and are very, very price sensitive. And I think until you sort of get that, get some relief from that aggressive expansion from those uh, spirits and uh, and frontiers and allegiance, it's going to be hard to see pricing power come back to this industry. Let's look at the cost side of the equation a little bit, uh, George. We've got uh, crude oil down around $52 a barrel. I'm, I'm guessing fuel has uh, the relatively lower fuel costs have been a uh, tailwind, uh, so to speak, for the airlines. What are they saying about their outlook for fuel? Yeah, so, you know, we're hearing a lot of them give us uh, guidance for at least one Q and sort of the two to two dollars and five cent range that's going to look uh that's going to look a little bit lower than some of them paid last year but not a lot so it's so it's not a lot of a pickup you know one of the perverse uh problems with that is that as fuel prices stay contained older airplanes are more economical to fly and so more people fly more of their equipment instead of retiring it because of uh you know because of inefficiency and that sort of leads to a little more capacity in, in the industry so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword there. So, George, as you're talking, I just uh, pulled up Google Flights and started thinking, all right, I want to check out some of these prices that are rock bottom. They're not that rock bottom, first of all. Let's just put that out there. And then you also have a situation where you're paying for everything under the sun from your Coke can to the extra space that you have to breathe uh, right above your nose. I'm just wondering, do you expect an increase in those add-ons uh, that you have to pay for that we see as a common feature of the frontiers of the world, for example? 
so I don't expect an increase. I, I expect that they'll continue the strategy that if you show up at the airport and you don't know whether or not you've got bags, you've got your bags on the flight, you'll find out that you probably haven't paid for the bags. And it's going to cost you a heck of a lot more at the airport Shocking. than it will at, uh, you know, if you did it when you booked. <laughs> So if you had any questions about whether you did have an extra fee, the answer is yes. George Ferguson, we love having you on. Thank you so much. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 